the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, as we continue to reflect upon all that's going on in Afghanistan, what is happening to the underground church there? And then we're joined by Matt Sorens, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, and Aubrey, as we continue to reflect upon uh, the craziness that's going on in oh, Afghanistan, and I don't think craziness is the right word, just the tragedy. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and as you and I said yesterday, the goal is not to try to say uh, whose fault is this? What should we've been doing yeah. 20 years ago, 10 years ago, yesterday? It's just a uh, uh, it's just just heartbreaking to see all that's going on. And I'm just wondering, Aubrey, and I've got some things I want to talk about, but as you've kind of watched the news mm-hmm. and reflected over the last 24 hours, what are kind of the, some of the feelings and the thoughts that are bubbling up for you? Man, I just know it's it just feels very devastating. And, uh, you know, that's being so far removed from it. I think that's, that's right. what I keep thinking. I'm not even in the middle of it. And it feels devastating. I can't imagine. I keep thinking about the mamas with their little ones you know, running around panicked for their lives and people who know they're not going to be able to get out or people who are just waiting to get out or people whose lives have already been lost and the fear. I mean, I, I honestly, this morning I got up early, was reading scripture and I was like, I need to pray. Just yeah. stop what you're doing and pray. And so I was just like, Lord, I, I just honestly prayed the Lord's prayer, like thy kingdom come, thy will be done in Afghanistan as it is in heaven. Because I don't know exactly what to pray. I just know that... Um, our brothers and sisters in Christ and then our brothers and sisters just in humanity That's are right. suffering in a way that we can't even imagine right now. And I think this is going to be news for months to come. Yeah, you know? the, the horrible stories of uh, the people who thought they were going to get evacuated yeah. and be protected and stuff and now kind of being left, <clears throat> excuse me, unknown as to what's going to happen. Terrifying. And, and te- yeah, I think terrifying is exactly the right words. Uh your friend Christine Kane, who has been on the show, mm-hmm. uh, she wrote this specifically about the church, and and this is kind of where I want to head our conversation as we think about what do we pray for, what are we calling out for, what are we trying to bring to light to our representatives, to people, or you know, what are we trying to highlight? She wrote this. At the moment, we are praying desperately for friends on the ground in the house church movement in Afghanistan, where the Taliban are coming after all Christians. Their courage is immense. Listen to this line, Aubrey. Most expect to meet Jesus Mm. face to face in the next two weeks. It is a powerful reminder right now of what matters and making every opportunity count for eternity. You just think of these underground church legitimately is an underground church where yes. uh or these people even pre uh the last week or two these people were putting their lives on the line by embracing the christian faith and and just 
really early church stuff. Yes. And, and now that the Taliban has taken over, I, I heard on another show this morning that they have made um, made it clear to the underground church. Literally, they've sent a message saying, we're coming for you. Mm. Like, we're coming for you. I A, can't imagine how terrifying this is, but B, uh, just – we let's put it this way: Robert, we've got to be praying, right? We live yeah. in a spot where we don't deal with this kind of stuff, and right. where it's it's unimaginable, right? We this has to this has to what you just talked about, what you did this morning. The, if this doesn't drive us to our knees, I don't know what else will. Yeah, what else will? And I I, I think I I never want to make situations of tragedy about us, but I do want to pause and just say. You know, for the Americans who sometimes think we're being persecuted Mm -hmm. right now, we are not being persecuted. Mm -hmm. Like this is actual persecution. And so I think we need to get out of our own bubbles. And like you said, be on our knees, lamenting, crying out for our brothers and sisters who are literally now about to lose their lives for Christ. Jenny Allen, who runs the If Gathering, she shared something, a text she received from a pastor that she works with in the underground church. And it says this. Let me just quickly read it. Yeah, please. Jenny, as you know, we reach and raise up locals that carry the work in the countries we serve. Things drastically shifted for our teams in Afghanistan overnight. Believers are scattered and literally running for the hills hiding in mountains and caves with just the clothes on their back. Winter will be approaching and we are working on getting aid and relief to these teams ASAP. Taliban is taking girls 15 years and younger from families and raping them and trafficking them. Also killing husbands with young wives and doing the same. Taliban has a list. This is what you talked about, Brian. Taliban has a list of Christians and churches. Believers are being hunted. Most of our leaders there are indigenous, so they're Afghan, which means they can't leave unless they flee as refugees. But unfortunately, the surrounding countries are closing their borders. And then here's a call to prayer. We need to pray that God will meet them in the mountains. Like Moses, who was hid in the cleft of the rock and saw God's glory, pray that they will be hidden from the enemy and will encounter the glory of God. Mm. Whew. That's hard. I mean, yeah, it's so heartbreaking. hard. And, and it does bring to question, like, what can we be praying for right now? And Aubrey, I... You know, I was thinking this morning, like, like, how do you pray for the Afghan church, right? Yeah, how do you yeah. pray for our brother, literally our brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe <laughs> who are going through with something that none of us can ever imagine? Maybe there's a person out there that can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but for 99% of us, we can't imagine this. And I'm thankful for that. Like, I don't think we need to feel guilty for that. Like, no, I'm that's thankful. like a gift from the Lord. Yeah. Yes. I'm thankful for that. But but here's something I, I was thinking about today. You know, you and I have kind of. We've been in the church and we've heard stuff for a long time. There, you hear stories of God doing miraculous things in the midst of situations like this, where God yeah. literally, um, this is going to sound crazy to, to kind of our Western minds, but I remember reading a story where somebody was in harm's way and God basically made them invisible, made them yes, unable yes. to be seen, where yes. God where God changes lives through visions and dreams. Like we could be praying that the Taliban would be having visions and dreams of the risen savior. That's right. uh, That he would be working miracles to protect. Like sometimes I think we can pray with very little expectation of Mm. like God protect them over there. Like it looks terrible. Like, but, but God does miraculous things. And we have used the quote before that the, that the, the gospel spreads most effectively somehow paradoxically yeah. through the blood of the martyrs, through the, yeah. through the uh, oppression of the church that has been yeah. the case since the book of Acts. So I think those are some very specific ways uh, that we can pray that God would act in a huge way. What are other ways that you can think that we could pray or maybe things that you think we can be doing right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of the things that I've just noticed people saying, I'm, I'm trying to get wisdom from other people, because sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do in situations right. like this. And I know we're going to have Matthew Sorens, who's the US Director for Cho- Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief up next. I feel like he's going to have a lot of wisdom for us. Mm-hmm. But I think find information. Don't shield yourself from the news right now. And I know for some people, the news is really sensitive. I'm not saying overindulge. But um, be aware of what's going on so that you know how to pray and so that you know what's happening in the world. And then I think also, like, if you don't have the right words to pray, that's okay. Like, the Holy Spirit will pray for you in words and and groans, as Roman Mm. says, when, when we don't have the words. And so I think we can just lean into the Holy Spirit and say, can you... Please, Holy Spirit, advocate. Can you intercede? I don't have the right words. I don't. I feel so distant from this, but I know this breaks your heart, God. And so, would you pray with words that I I don't even know how to pray? And um, I I'm with you, Brian. I think that's a really good call for all of us to pray with expectation. Mm-hmm. Like, pray that miracles happen. Pray that God shows up like He always has throughout the ancient days and even in the present. And I, I that to me was a really good word for us right now, Brian. That we sometimes pray without expectation. But this is a moment, I think, mm. for all of us to be on our knees saying, God, we want to see you show up and we're expecting you to. That's right. And so let's be praying. I know yesterday I had to find myself, uh, a lot of times we can just turn the TV off. Like, yeah. I don't want to read that anymore. Like, Make yourself sit in it. Make yourself yeah. know what's going on yeah. and be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ over in Afghanistan. As you said, pray with expectation, pray with uh, fervency. Uh, and, and let's see what God does. But yeah, a dark, dark time over there in Afghanistan. And we want to understand better. So one of the ways we're going to do that is to bring on Matthew Sorens. He's the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. Uh, Matthew is kind of one of the go-to people when you talk about refugees and the church. We're going to talk to him specifically about Afghanistan. All these people we see leaving on these planes and stuff. What's going to happen? What can the church do? We're going to be joined by Matthew Sorens to have that conversation next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, I am Brian Fromm. We are so glad to have you with us. And Aubrey, with all of this stuff going on in Afghanistan and we we hear about refugees and what's going to happen next, I think for both you and I, our first thoughts were, I really want to talk to Matt Sorens. Yeah. So uh, Matthew Sorens is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. He's also the National Coordinator for the Evangelical Immigration Table, author of Seeking Refuge on the Shores of Global Refugee uh, Crisis, and also Welcoming the Stranger. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much. I know you've got a lot going on. Thanks for joining us today. I always enjoy being with you both. Yeah, absolutely. And before we jump into just this such an important topic, I do want people to remember who you are. So why don't you introduce yourself so our people can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Well, I live out in Aurora, uh, so I'm in the Chicagoland area, and I, I've worked for World Relief for about 15 years now. Uh, World Relief is a global Christian humanitarian organization, so our mission at World Relief is to empower the local church to serve the most vulnerable. We do that in in various countries around the world and then in various communities within the United States, uh, where since the 1970s or so, we've been involved in welcoming refugees uh, and and serving other immigrants who are resettled to the United States. So Mm. working with local churches, of course, to do that. 
Well, that's amazing. We love the work of World Relief here. And Matthew, um, we were talking before we came on air. So much devastation in one weekend. It's almost hard to even know how to begin the conversation. But let's just begin with Afghanistan. Can you tell us from your perspective, what is going on? What does that mean uh, for refugees? What does that mean for the local church? I'm asking you a really broad question, but just talk, please. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, the situation in Afghanistan is just I mean, I think we've all seen the devastating images of, of the Taliban taking over Kabul just in the last few days, taking over basically the rest of the country in, in the days before that. Um, and we've all known for a number of months, at least, that the U.S. was withdrawing militarily from Afghanistan. I know there's, you know, there's a range of views on if that's the right call or not. And we really haven't, you know, we're not experts on that question. Right. What we have been really clear on is if the U.S. is going to leave militarily, that's going to leave certain people vulnerable. And high on that list are... Uh, people who serve the United States military or other, you know, serve the U.S. government in other ways as translators or in other capacities because they're, they're basically viewed as traitors by the mm-hmm. Taliban. And they are they have been threatened already. They have many of these individuals have already been killed and many more are fearful that they will be. And the U.S. government, I think appropriately, has committed to individuals who meet those certain qualifications, uh, having served as allies of the U.S. US military in a formal way that we would give them what's called a special immigrant visa, which is a special, it's very similar to refugee resettlement. It's a little bit distinct legally, but basically it's a way for those individuals to apply, be recommended by, for example, their military supervisor and, uh, and up the chain and then be approved to come to the United States. And we are able to welcome them um, at World Relief Chicago land and in communities throughout the United States um, and connect, you know, help them find housing and get on their feet, find a job, connect them to volunteers, often from a local church. So that's been happening for years, but there's been a backlog of somewhere around 18,000 individuals who have applied for that special immigrant visa status who have not yet been approved. Some of them backlogged for years, and that's them, plus they're they're allowed to bring their immediate families. So we could be talking 70,000, 80,000 people. And at World Relief, we've been pushing the, the Biden administration really for months now, since it was announced that the U.S. would be departing from Afghanistan, that, well, then you need a plan to get those people out. And the most obvious solution that we suggested would be to do what President Ford did um, when uh, when we needed to stand with our South Vietnamese allies after the Vietnam War, after the fall of Saigon, which was to bring about 130,000 people to Guam, which is U.S. territory. Um, we're not saying skip the vetting process. Of course, that's really important, but you get them out so yeah. that they're not at risk while they're going through this lengthy processing. And uh, President Clinton did a similar thing with with the Kurds who are U.S. allies out of Iraq. Unfortunately, from our perspective and frustratingly, President Biden and his administration have have not done that. And it's increasingly now that the Kabul has fallen and it's you know, it's it seems to be the case that the Biden administration um, didn't realize how quickly that would happen. Uh, It's going to be a lot more difficult to evacuate U.S. allies. And that said, they still need to do so. And we're going to be really clear, firm on that, that this is an, a moral obligation. It's frankly a moral outrage if we leave those people to be killed after they stood for the United States, frankly, in a way that I never have. And most of us never have um, who haven't served in, in the military. So that's our primary concern right now is getting those people out. Although I should also say there are a lot of other vulnerable Afghans as well, who, for example, Christians or other religious minorities who are less likely to be not that it's ever been great in Afghanistan, but we know the Taliban will be even harsher towards religious minorities. 
women and girls who have taken advantage of the opportunity to pursue education, uh, people who were maybe contractors of a U.S.-based NGO um, or others who, you know, I think, un unfortunately, we're likely to see a large number of Afghans fleeing. We're already seeing efforts to do that. It's not clear that people can always get out because the Taliban is in pretty good control of the whole country now. Yeah. Uh, but as people are able to get out, you know, we need to both work with allies in the region and we don't have, you know, there's not perfect options there for where people go. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is not new that people will be fleeing Afghanistan. I mean, we've yeah. served Afghan refugees for decades of world relief, but we think the U.S. needs to to revitalize our refugee resettlement program for those folks as well so that we can welcome our share of those people. Because, I mean, we have, a, I think, a moral obligation as Christians to people made in the image of God in general. But this case is a little bit unique because uh, many of these people are at risk because of standing with the United States and, and really signing up to be on the side of our national values, mm -hmm. which we had hoped would take root in Afghanistan and unfortunately do not seem to have done so. Yeah, Matthew, that's such a great background. And um, you could totally tell your frustration uh, around the the lack of urgency, it seems, that happened. And it, what what seems, I, I don't know much about the background, but it seems like people, sh the Biden administration should have seen this coming. That's kind of what people are saying. So what were they telling you guys as you pleaded with them for months? Like, we got to get this rolling. What were so, what was some of the pushback? Why, I guess the question is, why didn't that happen months ago? Yeah. I, you know, I, we we heard a lot of, well, we're working on that. Um, you know, stay tuned for more information. Um, even frankly, last week, late last week, we got a request if we could send staff from various parts of the United States to Fort Lee in Virginia to help process uh, special immigrant visa applicants who'd been, were at kind of the end of that pipeline and had been approved. And I was just... Uh, talking on the phone yesterday to a colleague from Spokane, Washington, who flew out Sunday afternoon to Fort Lee. And by the time he got there, they had announced that actually we don't need you right now. Wow. Um, we're still waiting for further instructions and hoping they will need him. But, if, you know, as, as Kabul fell more quickly than apparently was anticipated by the administration, uh, they were able to get out just a re relatively small number, about 2,000 uh, individuals who, you know, who have special immigrant visas approved. But that's really a drop in the bucket compared to the need. So we're going to continue to advocate, do everything we can. And I should say we have seen, you know, some of those 2000 have arrived in our, in communities around the United States in the last few weeks. And so there's also a really timely need for volunteers, for furniture, for financial support to help welcome these families well. Um, and we're, you know, we hope that we'll need a lot more of that because a lot more will be arriving in the weeks to come. That's great. Matthew Sorens is the U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. Uh, there are opportunities already for churches uh, to help, and that's hopefully only going to increase. So could you uh, expound on that a little bit as listeners? There might be pastors or other people going, man, I'd really like to help. What are the opportunities now and what do you see the opportunities in the future hopefully being for the local church? Yeah. So whether people from Afghanistan come as uh, on special immigrant visas, it's technically a, a distinct process from refugee resettlement, but it, in effect, it looks very similar. It's basically world relief is told by the State Department. This family is arriving at the airport, usually for the Chicagoland area at O'Hare, and we'll be there to meet them, uh, ideally with a volunteer or a team from, of, of volunteers from a, from a local church who are willing to come alongside our staff in really serving this family, um, especially in that initial arrival period when, you know, we'll have set up an apartment. We need help with that from churches and volunteers, both with, 
you know, the furnishings and household items, but also, um, frankly, if there's a huge challenge in the Chicagoland area is finding affordable housing. So if you happen to be a landlord who wants to say, you know, I'd take a, take a chance on someone who isn't going to have a good credit score when they arrive, they're going to have no credit score. Um, that's a huge challenge and need. Um, but basically we, we find that housing, we set up the apartment, uh, and we help people into work very quickly. We find that refugees in general, and this is certainly true for Afghans, who probably distinct from a lot of other refugees, tend to have, a lot of them have very good English when they first arrive because they serve as translators. Um, that's often not case, not the case perhaps for the, the, the wife or the spouse um, or children, but often for the, you know, whoever was the special immigrant visa holder. Um, we help people find jobs. We help people, kids get into school and help with that cultural adjustment. And the church is a huge part of that whole process um, in terms of providing financial support to World Relief to make that happen um, in terms of furnitures and setting up apartments. And then probably most importantly, in terms of providing friendship, which mm-hmm. seems kind of basic. But if any of us can think about if you know, none of us would choose to be, have to be uprooted and put into an entirely new place. But if we did, we would probably all be grateful for a friend who would who would bear with through some cultural misunderstandings, possibly with some language barriers and would help us to adjust to life in an, in an entirely new and very different place. Mm. And it's also just an incredible opportunity for the church to live out the command we have from Jesus to love our neighbors as ourselves. Which I think it's worth remembering that Jesus's model of a good neighbor was someone of a different ethnicity and a different language, a different religion, uh, even an errant religion. The Samaritans were considered to be, you know, uh, heretics. Mm. And yet, the Samaritan was the model of neighborly love who showed love to this Jewish person who was beat up, beaten up on the side of the road to Jericho. Mm-hmm. And that is what Jesus tells us to go and do likewise. Mm, such a good reminder, Matthew. You can find more about uh, ways to help at worldrelief.org, some of these things that Matthew mentioned. Matthew, I, I want to move from Afghanistan now to Haiti, because in the midst of everything that's happening in Afghanistan, Haiti was actually hit by another massive earthquake. Can you talk to us about what World Relief is doing there? Yeah, I appreciate that question because in some ways I'm concerned that, you know, this earthquake in Haiti, if that sounds similar, because something similar happened 11 years ago, and unfortunately it is very similar. It's mm. a devastating earthquake that I think has thus far gotten a lot less attention um, because of the situation in Afghanistan. And that's understandable, but as, as followers of Jesus, I think we need to be able to to wrestle with complex situations around the world and to bring the love of Christ into multiple places at once. And the good news is the church is strong in Haiti. World Relief's work in Haiti is, and we're right in the community in Lakai that was that was hardest hit. Um, we've long had church empowerment zones there where we bring together churches of different denominational backgrounds to serve the most vulnerable in their community. And they're on the ground now helping to respond to this disaster, which has really been disastrous. I mean, churches destroyed, buildings mm-hmm. destroyed, homes destroyed, uh, a death count that keeps going up every day and unfortunately is likely to continue to go up significantly. So um, we're, you know, we're really devastated by what's happening there and and really grateful for churches and, and individuals in the United States who are coming alongside uh, our colleagues in Haiti uh, and, and especially the local churches that we serve there to help serve the most vulnerable in that community. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that's just about everyone right now. So it's a disaster response in the short term. But we really want to be, you know, one of the reasons that we believe so strongly in working through the local church is that they're sustainable. They're going to be there, you know, beyond when World Relief is there. And um, we have a long history in Haiti, but, you know, the, the local church is really the institution that God has placed there 
to show love for their neighbors and to be that light of the world in that in, in a dark moment. So, um, you know, we are committed to serving Haiti through the local church for the long haul. And that's it's going to take a rebuilding process, especially there in that community that was hardest hit. Yeah, that's good. Matthew, uh, with the rest of our time, uh, I'm not really sure how to ask this question. Let's ask it this way. What about the person out there right now who's like, listen, all of this tragedy is so sad, but we're Americans. We just need to worry about America. Like, we can't be taking more people in. We can't be doing that. What, what's your, because I know that, that you probably hear stuff like that all the time. So how do you respond to that? Yeah, I guess I would respond on two levels. First, just on a, I think at the root of that question is sort of the presumption that there's just not enough to go around that we can't afford this. And on a national level, just from a, a secular perspective, I just don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on a call a few weeks ago with someone from the Iowa Business Coalition, a group of business leaders in Iowa, basically asking me, how can we get more of the Afghans who are likely to come to come to Iowa? Because we have mm-hmm. so many needs in our, our businesses for people who would fill jobs. And I mean, I could tell them, you know, for whatever reason, a lot of Afghans go to Sacramento, California, where they have family mm-hmm. members. But maybe you should advertise in the Afghan newspaper in Sacramento about how great <laughs> Iowa is, how many jobs there are, the affordable cost of living. Um, you know, there are many states in that circumstance who are actually really desperate for workers right now. And refugees are eager to fill that. Even on a fiscal level, it's true that, you know, there's some costs involved in resettling refugees. I don't have data specifically for Afghans or special immigrant visa holders, but refugees in general there's costs up front, but over time, they more than pay that back. Um, some mm. economists in Notre Dame found that uh, 20 years after arrival, the average refugee adult has contributed $21,000 more in taxes than the combined cost of governmental expenditures on their behalf over those 20 years, including the settlement costs. So it's usually around year eight or nine on average when people go from being a, a net receiver, receiving more from the taxpayer than they paid in, to actually a net contributor. Um, mm. But that... I also would say, so that's true for anyone. As Christians, I think we have to have a different perspective, though. Mm-hmm. And that is that we, you know, we're called to love our neighbor. And that call to love our neighbor, if it's really clear from Jesus's story in Luke chapter 10 of the Good Samaritan, even going back to Leviticus 19, where Jesus tells the people of Israel, love your neighbors yourself. And a few verses later says, when a foreigner resides with you in your land, you shall not mistreat them. The foreigner mm-hmm. residing among you shall be to you as your native born. You shall love them as yourselves. So our call to love is broad. Um, you know, it may or may not be a good political slogan to say we got to focus on our own and America <laughs> first. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, I was reading recently when Jesus goes into the, I think this is in the Gospel of Luke. He goes in and he gives this amazing sermon and everyone's praising him. And you skip a few verses later and they're literally trying to throw him off a cliff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. What did he say that got people so upset? He reminded these Jewish people that God also loved people who weren't Jewish. Wow. He reminded them that in the Old Testament that, you know, when Elisha uh, went to, uh, to heal a widow, there was plenty of Jewish widows he could have healed, but he went to someone who wasn't Jewish. And he basically challenged, I think, what can be a, an idol for us, that our nationality is the first and most important and the only thing we ought to care about. Mm. And again, I don't think that holds up even just on an economic level. I think if yeah. we were just looking out for our self-interest, we would probably want to take more refugees. But as Christians, we don't have the option for only looking out for our self-interest. We have to yeah. see each person as made in God's image. The government has a distinct role, and, and that's fair. But our role is to be those people at the airport who welcome people. Oh, thank you so much for that, Matt. And Matt, with another just few seconds that we have with you, can you let people know how to get connected with World Relief? Yeah, so worldrelief.org. And you'll see there that right on the top, there's options about both being involved in what we're doing in Haiti and 
um, in our response to Afghanistan, which includes both financial support for anyone anywhere, but especially for those in Chicagoland. Uh, we have offices in the north side of Chicago, in Carroll Stream, in DuPage County, and in Aurora. And I just walked into my office in Aurora and saw at least one Afghan uh, arrival on the board of oh, nice. coming in in the coming week. So I, I know that they're starting to come, and we pray that there'll be more coming soon. Oh, well, we're praying for you. Matthew Sorens, again, U.S. Director of Church Mobilization and Advocacy for World Relief. Uh, Matt, we're so thankful for the time you give us. You always help us understand these complex issues so much more. Thanks for joining us, friend. Glad to do it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us on a beautiful Tuesday afternoon. So much heaviness, right? Like Mm -hmm. everything from Afghanistan to that earthquake in Haiti uh, to COVID-19 and the Delta variant. Like it's all important stuff for us to kind of sit in and think about and pray about. Yeah. Um, But it can be really hard sometimes to do that. And so uh, I wanted to take just a little bit of time to play a sermon uh, clip from a preacher that I listen to all the time. Like, I think you and I, we've talked about how we have our go-to preachers online that we listen to. For me, near or at the top of that list is Matt Chandler at a Mm. village church down in Dallas. Yeah, he's great. Uh, I've told you before, I pray with all my being that he doesn't have any scandal like we see with these other people. (laughs) Oh, dear Lord, please, (laughs) please. Protect him, please. (laughs) Uh, And so uh, he gave, this is from years ago, but this clip is going to be from a sermon from a concept about uh, the concept of waiting on mm, the Lord. Okay. And I want our people to hear this and then let's reflect on it as to why this can be encouraging. So enjoy these couple minutes from Matt Chandler. What do you do when your mind is there, but your heart isn't? Like, what do you do when you know what sin is? You know what's right, you know what's wrong, you know what you need to be doing versus what you don't need to be doing. And your mind knows, but your heart isn't there yet. So you don't feel remorse over your sin, even though you know something is sin. Are you with me on this? What do you do when there's a gap between your head and your heart? Throughout the scriptures, there's this phrase, wait on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord isn't pleasant at all. In fact, in one of the most gut-wrenching psalms in the Bible, Psalm 42, David is literally in a fight with himself. He screams, Why are you so downcast, my soul? Put your hope in God. So his mind knows, don't make a God of that. Put your hope in God. Put your trust in God. Bow down before God. Serve God. Walk with God. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul, why aren't you buying into this? So how do you wait on the Lord if this is you? You position yourself under the waterfall of grace. And you wait while you walk in obedience. So one step at a time, one day at a time, asking for God to break your heart, asking for God to restore the joy of your salvation to you, asking God to make him your treasure, 
asking God, being honest about where you are, whether that be the desert or the low part or struggle, and you wait. Why? Because they who wait on the Lord, he will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and no longer be weary. They will walk and not grow faint. All right, so Aubrey, just that uh, concept of what do you do Mm. when your mind knows what you should be doing, but your heart's not in Mm. it. To hear somebody just acknowledge that, I find that to be really helpful. Because even as pastors, am I allowed for us to say this? Even as pastors, (laughs) there are seasons when you're like, I know what I should do. Right. But I don't feel like doing it. I right. don't want to. Don't you think that's a common? Maybe people just need to hear this right now. Don't you feel like that's a common struggle just for all believers? I think that's what I appreciated about this little message is just kind of naming this thing that is true. Yes. Often are we just don't feel it or we don't feel like it or we're yeah. not connected emotionally with our faith or we're not connected. I don't I don't know. And, and so I think just going that's part of the experience of the believer, that's okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I, I heard somebody say once that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Mm. Um, because the reality is it is faith, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so yeah. it does require sort of this step of step into mystery for us that even when we don't feel it and even when we don't see it, that God is still there and we're still going to choose somehow to practice following him. I, I, yeah, I appreciate that Matt Chandler just named that because I think that normalizes it for all of us. Yeah. And so the concept here of waiting on the Lord, and I love how he talks about just sitting under the waterfall of grace. Beautiful. Uh, how do we do that? What's that look like? Flesh that out for people as you hear that, because it is beautiful imagery, but but practically speaking, what does it look like for us as believers to wait on the Lord in those seasons where, like you said, uh, there may be doubt, there may be this disconnect going on in our minds and our faith? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. My tendency is to go, okay, well, what do I do? What do you do? Right. What do you do? Uh, what are the handholds? What do I, and I, I actually do think the grace of God is that there are things to do. Um, that's this is the moment when you lean into your spiritual practices, right? This is the moment when you get up, you read scripture, you pray, you practice silence, you pray with other Christians, you borrow the faith of other believers when you don't have it for your own. You listen mm. to a sermon like Matt Chandler's to remind you. And then I think something he said that I think is really true is just to go almost every morning, God, oh, I don't feel you right now. I don't feel it right now. I am, I don't know, but I'm here. Can you please find me in this? Yeah. And then just wait and trust that God will. It, it's funny, like, even though I just said there's a lot, there are things we can do. There's not a lot we have to do mm. except let God love us in those seasons by coming near and telling him, like, we don't feel you. We need you. And then God will show up. Yeah. And this idea that he renewed, we all know that verse, right? Rise up like eagles, renew the strength. Uh, but but he renews the strength of those who wait upon him. And we don't yeah. do waiting very well in our, no in our culture, way. right? I'm yes. staring at a phone right now that, that allows me to not have to wait for anything. Uh, like we don't have to wait for to order our food. We don't have to wait to know everything that's going on in the world. I don't have to wait to get in contact with my family. Like there's not a lot of waiting, but understanding that in these moments where we don't really 
feel God, and I'm almost using air quotes, like feeling him, mm-hmm. to know that God is still present and he's still at work and that that we take – I also, and I'll close with this, I'd love to know what you think about this, just that idea that he said, just put one foot in front of the other, just yeah. – do it. Obey for the sake of obeying, yeah. right? Read your Bible for the sake of reading a Bible. Yeah. And you talk about this sometimes. Sometimes just the discipline, sometimes the feeling leads to discipline, but often at times discipline will lead to the feeling, right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think sometimes we forget that this faith that we have is a practice. And so yeah. I do think it's important for us to practice, like do the work, do the spiritual disciplines of the faith, because they're all ultimately disciplines of grace. Like That's these right. are means by which God speaks to us. And and I think that the worst thing you can do in seasons of not feeling God or not feeling like following God is to walk away. I that's think right. that's the moment you run, you lean in, you go to church, you get with your Christian community like you never have before. Um, because th- this is the beauty of our faith. We've talked about this a lot. It's a communal faith. And so we can um, ask for help from other people. Like I said before, borrow faith from other believers and uh, God will show up. He will. Those, right. are, those are really important parts of our faith journey. Absolutely. So a helpful word there from Matt Chandler. Hope that you are encouraged by that Uh, wherever you're at right now in your faith. Hopefully you found that to be encouraging. Well, coming up next, uh, an interesting article, an interesting study that makes this case that abortion just isn't the motivating issue for evangelicals that it once was. We're going to wrestle with that conclusion next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, why isn't abortion the motivating issue for evangelicals that it once was? And is social media making us stupid? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. Um, Okay, Brian, Mm -hmm. deep, deep question for you. I'm ready. Okay. So I was reading something that said that abortion is not the motivating issue for evangelicals that it once was. And we'll unpack that in a minute. But uh, before we do, do you have a uh, do you have a thought about that? Like, does that feel true to you? And if so, why? Yeah, I was a little surprised by this article that you're referencing at Religion News because of uh, abortion kind of gets falls not just second or third, but further down. It's this article written by Ryan Burge. Uh, kind of what are the motivating factors? I think it, what it used to be that abortion, maybe when you and I were younger, it felt like abortion was the issue. Mm-hmm. And now it, now I would say abortion feels like one of the issues, which uh, I think I feel <laughs> I'm going to hedge my bets here. I think I feel simultaneously good and bad about that. <laughs> like, <laughs> Unpack that. I think that we got some really bad politicians who got elected into office simply by saying the right things about abortion, Yeah, and I, I, whether totally they believed it true. or not. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And you and I, we've talked about this before, that we want people who are pro-life from womb to tomb, who that's yeah. going to be uh, their um, their uh, kind of the lens through which they see the world, healthcare and immigration and gun control. And what yes. I'm not saying what they should believe about that, but that pro-life, quote unquote, is the lens through which they view all of those things, taxes and whatever else it might be. 
And abortion then becomes one of those. Does that make sense? Yeah, I I, ag- I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think what I what I found. So again, this is an article at Religion News Network um, that's simply titled "Why Isn't uh, or Abortion Just Isn't the Motivating Issue for Evangelicals It Once Was?" I I think for me, I wish it, maybe this is naive. But like you were saying, I don't know why it has to be either or. Like, I feel like abortion should be a priority or, you know, pro-life, anti-abortion should be a priority along with issues around racism, along with issues around immigration, like you're saying, along with issues around, um, you know, gun control and even women's health and things like that. I sometimes because of those uh, lightning rod political figures, it seems like we've had to make these subjects opposed to one another when really it all could be under that umbrella of pro-life. I think it's interesting to think that this was really the issue, at least of our day growing up. Yeah. And now um, things may be changing. And, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure what to do about that, but I certainly think it's important for us to know um, this says that in this article, the data indicates that white evangelicals, by and large, do not have a hard line approach to abortion. In fact, just 20 percent of them thought abortion should be completely illegal. Another 35 percent said it should be very difficult to obtain an abortion, while 45 percent of all white evangelicals say it should be somewhat not to or not at all difficult to obtain an abortion. In short, nearly half of white evangelicals don't think the United States should make it incredibly burdensome to obtain an abortion. That was surprising to me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, and that's when I said before, like there's, there's good aspects to this and bad. I think the bad is you can swing this pendulum too far, right? As Christians and say, it's not just about abortion for all these years. It's just been about abortion. Yeah. Yes. And and we would agree with you that it shouldn't be about abortion, but it also shouldn't not be about abortion, right? That's like it, yeah. we can't swing the pendulum and go, so therefore we're going to stop. No, abortion, When just by me saying it shouldn't be the only issue, doesn't mean that I believe it shouldn't be even the top issue. Right. I do. Like, right. I think we as Christians cannot lose sight of the fact that babies are being killed at yeah. an, I almost said alarming rate. I don't think that that's at a horrifically alarming rate. Yeah. And that we are called to stand up for the most vulnerable. I think what we're trying to say is, and we're also called to stand up for the vulnerable here and the marginalized here, but that doesn't mean that we stop standing up for babies. It just yeah. means that we stop going, I'm having a one-issue litmus test on my politicians that as long as they pass it, I'm in. And quite frankly, it also means we need to have really um, honest conversations around abortion. Like what is actually going to lower the abortion rate? I think that then also becomes important because, yes, stricter laws are super important, and uh, but so are – uh, expanding health care so that more poor people have better options. You know what I mean? Like sometimes we aren't willing to have these conversations. We just want to vote for the guy or the girl who gets up and says abortion bad. So yes, the right. church needs to hold vehemently. We want to reduce abortions uh, hard stop. We want to reduce and even eliminate abortions. What, what we're often not willing to do is to have the hard conversations about now, how does that actually happen? How do those yes. actually come? And those yeah. are where we become uncomfortable. So that's where I said it's a good and bad. 
I, I get uncomfortable when people go, as long as they're pro-life, I'm voting for them. Well, what if they're not pro-life in 18 other spots? <laughs> like, what if that's, that's a, a really important question. And what if they're just saying they're pro-life yes. because they know then they can get the religious right vote, but they're not actually doing anything about it? Right, right. And so I think we need to be okay with the – I guess I, I want to encourage people this way. Uh, church, Christ follower, we must, must, must stand up for the unborn. Okay. Yeah, yeah. We are Period. called. Yes. We are called to be there for the least of these, for the marginalized. Uh, and there's no more least of these than an unborn baby. Uh, but we have to be willing to have the actual conversation to listen to the experts who are dealing, you know, people at caring, you know, a care net or a caring network or other places yes. who are in the battle. We must be willing to listen to them and go, you know what? Here's the political policies that are actually going to reduce abortions as opposed to, Hey, that politician, that candidate got up, uh, behind a microphone and said they're against abortion. So therefore I'm voting for him. Well, maybe their policies won't actually reduce abortion. Maybe they will. So I think we need to have those conversations. And then also embedded in this article is the fact that, uh, for the, uh, for the white evangelical, one of the, maybe the most driving issue right now, uh, is kind of a immigration and anti-immigration mm-hmm. stance, which I know is a complex issue. We just mm-hmm. had Matthew Sorens on earlier in the show. Uh, but I struggle with that because that is a, a marginalization issue that I don't know that there's a good answer for, but to read that that's the driving force instead of abortion now in these statistics of evangelicals, I find pretty troubling. Yeah, I find it troubling too, because again, I, we can hold all of these things at once. Like we can, we can have nuance and say mm-hmm. there are complicated issues, uh, under a number of different umbrellas. But as Christians, like we don't have to, we don't have to pin one against the other. Mm-hmm. And I, I think an, another question that we need to be asking just as Christians is, okay. Uh, yes. Who are we voting for? What are the policies? How are we supporting women in this whole journey? And then how can we get better as a church at like finding out the pain of abortion? Why women are having abortions? Uh, is it because the church has not been as supportive as we need to be? Is mm-hmm. it because, uh, we're not housing and caring for, w- uh, women who are in need? We're not adding to healthcare. I mean, I think there's important questions we need mm-hmm. to be asking, like you were saying, Brian, beyond just, is this person pro-life or not or pro-abortion? Right. Uh, what can we do as the church, even outside of politics to care for the vulnerable in our midst, including pregnant women and, and help us support with grace in a way that we haven't. And yep. anyway, it's an, it's an interesting conversation. Certainly one I think that's worth continuing to talk about. Um, I wonder too, just before we end, is there a call for Christians to be willing to adopt or foster mm-hmm. more babies? That's another part yes. of this conversation. So lots of nuance, lots of things to consider. Mm-hmm. Stick around. Um, we don't want to miss the fact that with everything going on in the world right now, that Haiti has experienced a massive earthquake. We want to talk a little bit about that and how we can be active in praying for and supporting Haitians there. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And with uh, everything going on in Afghanistan right now, it felt important to Brian and I that we didn't miss talking about Haiti and some of the devastation because of the earthquake there and a tropical storm that's beginning to arrive there. 
And Brian, before we jump into a conversation, we had some audio that's covering what's happening uh, because of the earthquake there and some of the horrible situation. So let's go ahead and listen to some of that. Homes and buildings reduced to rubble. Now, dozens of search and rescue teams are desperately digging through mountains of debris, looking for any signs of survivors. Good Samaritans use their bare hands to pull this woman and a young boy to safety after they were buried under this collapsed building. The quake has killed more than 1,400 people and destroyed thousands of homes. And now there's a race against time as a tropical depression is threatening to bring heavy rains and major flooding to areas hit hardest, which could hamper rescue operations. So the earthquake has killed right now. They have a death toll of 1,400, mm. assuming that it's going to go up right. higher than that. Um, what do you think just seeing this story, hearing the story, watching some of these images, Brian? It's devastating, you know, like the, as Matthew Sorens reminded us earlier there, you know, Haiti had a huge earthquake, um, you know, within the last five to 10 years that was dev- that they haven't really gotten over. Yeah. And now that earthquake was in a much more dense area. This one's a little more rural, which is at least keeping the death toll down a little bit. But, uh, you know, there's not I think of the war, the conversations we have with the guys uh, and from Food for the Poor. Right. When they're mm-hmm. in, they're one of our great partners here at AM 1160. And they're doing a lot of work in Haiti and they have been. And the stories they tell are just tragic. They're yeah. just uh, overwhelming. And, yeah. and now you add on top of that an earthquake, and then you add on top of that earthquake a possible tropical storm coming their way this weekend. And, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, how do you keep going? And again, Matthew Sorens was on earlier, and he talked about how you know World Relief has partners down there, local churches. Churches have been uh, destroyed by this. And, and yeah, when you ask, what do you think about it? You almost also become numb because we're not going through this. And so right. it becomes easy for your watch on the today show for two minutes and then they move on to the next story, which yeah. is natural. Right. Or, you know, your focus goes to what's going on in Afghanistan or well, quite frankly, what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's mm-hmm. an ability to, to shut these things off. And that's one reason you and I want to highlight these things is to remind everybody, but ourselves included, uh, that we need to be praying and figuring out ways that we can help the people of Haiti as well. Yeah. In fact, if you're one of those people looking for ways to help, you can support the people of Haiti by going to worldrelief.org or the organization that Brian just talked about, foodforthepoor.org. Our friends Paul Anitra and Todd Chapman are there. We've had them on the show. I'm sure we'll have them on again. Uh, again, that's foodforthepoor.org. And, you know, I didn't say this as we started this uh, segment, but if You've missed our conversation with Matthew Sorens. He has a lot of practical wisdom for the church right now. You can always find that conversation or any episodes you missed at our podcast, which you can find anywhere you listen to your podcast or on our website, 1160hope.com. Morgan Lee over at Christianity Today interviewed some Christian church leaders Mm -hmm. in Haiti comparing the reaction to the... um, the hurricane in 2010, which killed 300,000 people. Mm. I mean, that was devastating compared to now the earthquake that has killed at least 1400 people. And interestingly, she asked, is the church in Haiti better prepared to process this earthquake than the last earthquake Mm -hmm. earthquake? And um, this leader that she interviewed said, I thought this was really interesting that 
in terms of response to the crisis, the church in Haiti is better prepared today because it has living memories of previous experiences. Mm. He says that they identified some of the best practices and some of the errors that were made in the relief effort for Hurricane Matthew, put together a document. It's being shared um, around uh, Haitian leaders as they consider interventions for this new crisis. And then she also asked the question about theodicy, which for those people who don't know, theodicy is sort of the debate of where is God in suffering? Where yeah. is God in evil? Where is God in what feels like judgment? And um, he says, people are saying that this is less of a divine judgment, which actually some people were saying for Hurricane Matthew. Instead, we're saying that um, that's a simplistic explanation for evil in our society. Fortunately, in the middle of this disaster, people are still calling on the Lord and believing that despite the natural disasters, that God is still a good God. Mm. I feel like that's an important message for all of us. Yeah. I mean, we all go through trouble and trials and tribulations in our life and we don't need to undersell them. Like, well, I d- I've never been through an earthquake or right. I've never been through. Uh, understood. Understood. Uh, but there, there are times in each of our lives, Aubrey, where we do look at, uh, look at in the mirror and go, is God actually here? Or mm-hmm. is this, if God is here, is he punishing me right now? And there are consequences to actions, but is this thing that I had no control over actually God's divine judgment, uh, over something, you know, that happened decades ago or whatever else? And so there is encouragement to see the pastors in Haiti going, you know what? We've kind of helped our people get past that. But Aubrey, I think that's a question. People ask on an individual level all the time, not only where is God, but have I made God angry? Is this Mm. why I now have cancer? Is this why my son is whatever, you know, whatever else it might be? Is this why I lost my job? Is this just a sign of God's anger? And that can really have devastating effects, obviously, on our own view of God and our own faith. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I I think interestingly is the question itself is really a wrong view of God because it does assume that God is distant from our pain. It assumes that God is sort of this puppet master God, like willing evil as he chooses. And ultimately, uh, what we know from scripture is that God is nearest to those who are suffering. God is close to the brokenhearted. God is at work redeeming the pain of this world right now, writing a greater story than we could even imagine. So we almost have to reframe the question like not god where are you not god how could you let this happen but god please be near because i need you so desperately and then we can trust that god will show up and do only what god can do and that's bring Mm. somehow bring good out of these devastating situations one of the things that we can be praying for according to this article by morgan lee christianity today is we're praying for haiti uh christian leaders there are praying for some really specific things so i'm just going to list those for you praying people out there. They're praying for safe transportation of humanitarian relief and equitable distribution of help. They're praying for powerful witness of Christian compassion during this crisis. They're praying for generous contributions to arrive in a timely fashion for rebuilding, including for damaged churches. A way you can contribute right now, listener, is again by going for to foodforthepoor.org or worldrelief.org. They're also praying for limited greed and misuse of funds. They're praying for vision and political will for local authorities as they seek the welfare of the people. They're praying for political breakthrough and stability through meaningful negotiations among Mm. political groups and civil society. Um, especially because this is the other thing we didn't talk about. They're still reeling from the assassination of their president. So that's part of this whole nation's grief as well. They're also praying for credible and experienced citizens in country and in the diaspora. That's the uh, church that has been, you know, left their homeland. 
are raised and find visibility as potential political leaders for the nation. So really, they're, they want Christian leaders in their nation. And then they're praying for protection from this tropical storm that's coming. So if you're a praying person, those are some very specific ways you can pray. Yeah. And, and I, you know what? It feels like we've said this a lot in the last two days because of all the crazy stuff going on in the world. At the very least, we need to commit to pray. Like we've got to be men and women who go, you know what? I believe prayer is important. It's powerful and effective. And therefore I'm going to pray. Yeah. Yep. I think it's a good word for all of us. Lots going on in the world. We don't want to be blind to it. We want to keep bringing these stories to you so that we can remember how we can partner as the local church with the global church. We'll stick around. We're coming up uh, to talk about something kind of funny. Does social media make us stupid? Yes. You're listening to <laughs> Yes, that's the answer. We'll answer that for you in a little more nuanced way when you return. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson. I'm alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are talking about social media and stupidity. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Does social media make us stupid, stressed, fake people? Um, I'm bringing this up because on my personal Facebook page, Aubrey Travis Sampson, on Monday, I do something called Monday Matters, where I ask people's opinion about anything. I mean, usually it's not something deep, right? Sometimes it's just like, where do you get the best hot dog? Or what's the best way to drink your coffee? But I decided to ask a question about social media last Monday. Is social media making us into stupid, stressed, false people? Or is it triggering something that was already there in the first place? Is it Mm. mostly neutral or is it beneficial? And as you can imagine, Brian, I got lots of responses to this one. Reminding, remembering that the responses were on social media. I know there's so much <laughs> there's so much irony, isn't there? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, I love it. Okay, so before I read you some of what people say, I'm going to have you respond to their answers, but what do you just think about that question in general? I do not think that um that social media is neutral. I think mm-hmm. we've learned enough about it. Uh I think of the movie uh the documentary um why the am social I dilemma. My, thank you. Thank you. I, mm-hmm. I really am losing my mind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Here we go. The social dilemma. I think of the studies that have been done about not just how social media is reacting to our preferences, but it's forming our preferences. Mm-hmm. So I would say uh, on that hand, uh, social media is not uh, neutral. And also, I think there is an addictive nature to social media. Absolutely. That causes us to not turn our minds off, that causes our minds to kind of it's like when you're when your computer is just running and that fan is going right like it causes it to never shut down and mm. therefore uh there's no time for deep thought there's no time for reflection yeah, and that's right. and you could say well that's all of our faults i would agree with that but they've literally set up social media in such a way that without some real um intentionality it is kind of addictive in the way it's set up from its color scheme to how you refresh it to all sorts of other things and so uh i do think for those reasons it is uh making us more stupid it's making us dumber because it's not giving us the space to reflect it's giving us only uh the um it's it's causing us to just react all the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's causing us to get mad. It's causing us to believe things that probably aren't true. Mm. Uh, we've seen that only grow over the last, you know, whether it be politics or vaccines or yep. COVID or whatever else yep. it might be. Uh, and so taking all of that as a whole, 
I don't think social media is evil. I'm on it. Like, I think there's, right. there's great value to it. But if you're asking it, is it beneficial, uh, to, or, or is it making us, you know, more dumb, more short tempered, more, so- I think the answer is unequivocally yes to that. And that's <laughs> why we've got to put up some, um, some guards around it, not get off it. You don't need to become Amish and just get rid of your right, phone and right. everything. But I do think we need to be honest about the safeguards that are necessary. You know, what's interesting, even just hearing you talk, Brian, because I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I wonder if there is a day in the far away future when we see social media like we've seen smoking, right? Like smoking mm. was so socially acceptable. Pregnant women smoked. Everyone smoked. It was so fashionable. Right. It was just what people did. And they begin to get the warnings about it. Actually, this is not good for you. Actually, this is causing lung cancer. Actually, we ignored it. We ignored it. We ignored it. And then there was a moment in time when we started to say, Ooh, maybe we shouldn't smoke in restaurants. Ooh, maybe we shouldn't smoke in airplanes. And then before you know it, smoking is not the thing it once was. Now, I'm not saying it's not happening. Of course, people smoke Mm -hmm. all over the country, Mm -hmm. all over the world. But it is not the most popular thing it once was because we've learned some lessons. And I wonder if there is a day and age when we go, okay, the, the impact of social media is so negative for our health. This is actually a health crisis. We're gonna we're going to see a majority of people step away. I don't see that happening anytime soon. No. I just wonder if there's a future where that is a possibility. Yeah, I think that I think at the very least there are grave uh, grave there's great health concerns, mm-hmm. uh mental health, physical all sorts of health concerns uh that have to be wrestled with going forward. That like you said, it could end up in a spot where we go, "Hey, we've learned this and we need to talk about it." Uh that's for sure, I think a possibility. Okay, so I wanted to read a couple of the responses on my Facebook uh, page. Again, this is for my Monday Matters question that I ask on Mondays that I I thought were interesting responses. So one is from Aaron Barnett. He's actually been on the show before. He's married to Hannah Gronowski Barnett, who uh, is a board member here at Salem. And she runs Generation Distinct. Here's what he said. And this was interesting to me because he's of a younger generation. He's a um, a Gen Zer. Uh, he says, this is a great question. I think it raises flags to me around mental health and things that I personally am thinking through. One, are we confident in who we are while on social media? Hmm. Could we walk away from it right now if we needed to? I thought that was a really good question. Then he says, number two, where does your identity come from or rest in? Is that something we should and can anchor ourselves to? Three, what's the gap between what you post and how you live? Are you posting about being vulnerable, but never actually going deep with people? Then he says, here's how I think it can actually be beneficial. One, I think it's beneficial if you're creating a more unified world through your media. Two, if some of your post causes division and not reconciliation or redemption, I think we're kind of missing out. So that mm-hmm. uh, that one's a little confusing, but I think he's saying like, Let's use it in a way that causes reconciliation and redemption. Yes. Then three, he says, I think it's beneficial if we highlight the beauty of the people within our lives. I'm a huge words of affirmation guy. Words carry weight. When you maximize social media to love others well, that's one of our great callings. Media is a way to highlight others and to demonstrate love to others. I thought that was a really a good take on it. Yeah. Anything stand out to you from that response? I think using he he acknowledges there when he says we're missing the point or we're missing the opportunity, he in a very uh, well-written way is acknowledging there is an opportunity to social media. It's not all bad or all good or all fluff. There is an opportunity for deep connection, for challenge, for reconciliation, as he says. Uh, it's just that that's not often how we use it. 
Right. And so I, I, I appreciate that he's acknowledging there are definite dangers to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, to social media, but there are, there are possibilities, but oftentimes we're just not running towards those possibilities. Yeah. We're not running towards them unless we're really mindful about it. So I thought that was interesting. Now here's one from our own Marcus Brown. Marcus is basically our boss here at Salem and he has a very firm response. He says, social media is absolutely making us into stupid, stressed and false people. Just about every study conducted has shown that the use of social media increases feelings of anxiety depression, lower self-esteem, and negatively impacts sleep quality. And if you don't want to read academic studies, go watch The Social Dilemma. That's what you (laughs) talked about, Brian. All of these above outcomes are not unintended. They're features, not bugs. I thought that was really interesting. I think he raises a great question as to not just... Are, are things like, uh, you know, addiction and other things about social media, are they just byproducts or are they actually part of this? Yeah. Are they actually uh, part of the purpose is to sell you things and get you there? And this, as opposed to a lot of us treat Facebook, say, as a neutral thing, we're like, oh, I get to see pictures of my friend's kids and, right, their, right. and their pets and right. uh, wish people a happy birthday. And and knowing that there's a lot more than that, I think uh, I tend to agree with what Marcus says there. I, I obviously think there's good aspects to it, things that we can use it for. You, you know, it's it's redeemable in some circumstances, but I do not think it's neutral for sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's not neutral. OK, so, Brian, with the with the like 30 seconds we have left, what encouraging words would you give to people to create some sort of social media rhythms that are healthy and good for their souls? Yeah, l- a, don't let social media control you. You control your social media use. Mm, so, uh, you know, I told you within the last month, I deleted the Facebook app from my phone. I was on it too much. I was too easily just any downtime hitting it. You know what I mean? Uh, and so allow it to control you. And then I think Aaron uh, gave a good point there. Are you the same person on social media or is it bringing stuff up in you that is not Christ-like? Whether you're posting, commenting, or it's just causing you to think in a certain way that maybe you never put out there, but that is harmful. I think, uh, and and I guess the last thing I would say, uh, Karen Swallow-Prior, we had heard on the talk about this, Jeff Mingi, is it causing you to not be able to think deeply? Mm -hmm. Are you never reading your Bible because you're Mm -hmm. on Twitter or Facebook? Are you not reading at all? Are you not able to sit in quiet because you're what, you know, if that is been short circuited, you've got yourself a big problem. So I think those are some important questions. Yeah, that's a great word for all of us, Brian. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about comfort and suffering and the dangers in both. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Tuesday evening. I'm Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so grateful that you've been with us today. We like to end the show each and every day with some words of encouragement for you because we know life is hard, especially right now with all the suffering going on in the world. And so we want to um, give you something to kind of settle into the evening, give you what you need to get through tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And um, Brian, this is going to sound like it's not hopeful, but we're going to go to a hopeful place here. I was thinking about a time in my life when I have been uncomfortable. 
comfortable mm-hmm. um, because, you know, we're paying attention to a lot of the suffering in the world in Afghanistan, in Haiti, in Cuba. And I have not experienced that level of suffering. And no. I praise God for that. You know, that I, I don't feel guilty about that. I do thank God for that, though. But there have, of course, been seasons in life for all of us when we experience our own level of pain and suffering, sorrow, hardship, heartache. And you know, I've talked about on the show before in 2015, which is a horrific year where I got sick out of nowhere with an autoimmune disease and I couldn't walk for Mm. weeks. I mean, my husband, Kevin, was carrying me around the house. It took a good year to kind of get back to a new normal anyway. I couldn't go up and down the stairs to our bedroom. I was sleeping on the couch at night. Like I was in so much pain, ice, heat constantly on me. I had to quit my job at the time. Like it was terrible. And yet somehow in the midst of that discomfort, I met God in a way that I hadn't before. And I I know this is a mystery we talk about a lot on the show, but somehow I think it is when we're most comfortable that we don't necessarily need God. When we are the most uncomfortable, we find that God is close, which is what he promises in scripture. But it always sort of blows my mind to think about that. Is there a time in your life you can remember being uncomfortable or, or, or struggling? Yeah, I th- and I think what you bring up is so super important, and that's why we keep circling back to it, is that we can't uh, – we do this in the West, in, in America specifically, uh, at the worst with prosperity preachers, right? But we all have this prosperity gospel in us a little bit mm-hmm. uh, where it's my comfort, my ease, my bank account, my things mm-hmm. are are directly tied to God's favor in my yeah. life. Yeah. and. That might be the case at times, but but when we link those things, then we have the uncomfortable nature of going, well, what happens when I get that diagnosis or what happens when that relation – does that mean now I've lost God's favor in my life, that God has turned against me? And what instead you are talking about here is what we actually see in the Bible over and over again and hear from people over and over again is in those times of trouble, in those times of discomfort, as you said, is actually when we meet God most deeply. And then you're left with this weird like, yeah, but I don't want to go back to that. <laughs> I want to. <laughs> totally. I don't want to go back there yeah, again. <laughs> like I remember early on in marriage when Carrie and I were trying to have kids and, and we had some real struggles. We had miscarriages and we had mm-hmm. other uh, mitigating factors that we would literally were like, are we going to be able to have kids? Mm. And there was a real darkness with each miscarriage and other wow. things as your friends are having babies around you yeah. and all this stuff. And you're wow. going, am I, are, are, are we just never going to have that? And then it leaves you in a spot specifically when you relate to God in those moments of going like, do do I believe that God is still good? Can I still trust mm. him? Or has this whole faith thing all along just been for uh, you know, what God can give me. And then when he stops giving to me what I want, then I turn on him. And, uh, you know, there, there's any spectrum of this, right? Like from what yeah. we've described to these these house church Christians right now cowering behind their locked doors in Afghanistan yeah. going, yeah, we kind of expect to die in the next two weeks. I mean, what does that mean about God in their life? Has God turned his back on mm-hmm. them? Has God said, well, you know, you know, I, I'm done with you. You know, here you are. Here you go, Taliban. Like, is that what it is? Or is God saying, no, I'm there yeah. in those rooms with you. I'm mm-hmm. near to the brokenhearted. And so th- there's there's the trouble in our lives. But then there's just the flip side of it, Aubrey, about the idea of comfort, that when we have comfort in our life, we often don't hear God's voice in our life. And yeah. we often don't look to God because 
are we allowed to say this? We don't need him in those moments. That's mm. our feeling. We do still, but yes. we, it's our feeling. Like, I don't need God right now. Everything's coming up roses. I'm kind of killing it right now. It's C.S. Lewis's old quote, uh, that God whispers in our comfort, but, uh, but pain is God's megaphone. He yells mm. to us in our pain. And, uh, and, and when we live in a society like ours that is built on comfort, that strives for comfort, that is so much more comfortable than the rest of the world, it calls into question how do we hear God's voice yeah. even when things are good? Yeah, I, I, this is so important for us to consider sometimes. There's an article right now at Proverbs 31 by Lisa Turkers called When Comfort is My Enemy. And she says this, certainty, comfort, no, she says certain. Comfortable, predictable. These are all words I long to use to describe my life. And I, you know, I read that first line and I thought, yes, I want certainty. I want a comfortable life. I mean, I was just on vacation. We talked about it yesterday, Brian. I want to live That's as right. if my life is vacation. You know what I mean? Um, but she says, but what if the comfort and certainties we crave today are actually a deadly recipe for complacency mm. that will draw our hearts further away from God? Without challenges and changes, people tend to grow increasingly distant from God and resistant to his ways. And I, I do think like some of the messages of Christianity are hard messages. And I think this is actually one of the ones that's really hard, that that discomfort and pain and suffering are somehow actually better for us mm. than we think they are. And I don't always want to, I don't know, I don't always want to embrace that. Sometimes I do want that life of, of certainty. I certainly don't want to be suffering the way my Afghan brothers and sisters are suffering right now. But I think ultimately, if we can kind of step outside of our own bubble, outside of our own, like, you know, uh, for lack of a better phrase, comfort zone, mm -hmm. we can see that somehow God is in that discomfort and somehow yeah. God is in, I mean, you know, God is in Afghanistan right now doing right. what only God can do. And, you know, I don't know if we can wrap this lesson up in a pretty little package, but I do think it's just a reminder for all of us that sometimes certainty and comfort are actually not the thing that's good for us. Mm -hmm. God is going to use the the pressing times in our life to bring the oil of anointing that we really sure. long to experience. And sometimes I think we just have to remember that the things we're longing for are actually deeper than we even believe they are. They're deeper than comfort. They're deeper than certainty. We're, what we're actually longing for is an encounter with God. And sometimes yeah. that happens in our pain and in our suffering. And I think the word that I'd leave people with today is if you are in a season of pain and suffering, uh, know that that the call on your life is to lean into God. Mm. Like often our inclination is to push away from God in those moments. But but we can lean into him uh, and there find his peace, his power, his presence uh, in ways that, like you said, we're not going to when things are easy, when all is going well. Uh, again, we don't need to apologize for all going well and yep. things being comfortable. But there are um, Bible talks about our suffering. We need to wrestle with this being an opportunity, an opportunity to lean in, an opportunity to know God more deeply and to live out what the book of Romans says when it says God can work out. All, not that everything's good, but God work out all things for good uh, and, and that we can hold on to that. So I'd encourage people out there, if you're struggling to lean in, to lean in, okay. to go to God in prayer uh, and he promises to be present.
Yeah, that seems to be a theme of today's show. It is. So we hope you are encouraged today. Be sure to join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. right here on The Common Good at AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.